You're listening to the Royal Society of Medicine Digital Health Council podcast, where we explore health tech innovations that are transforming healthcare. With me, your host, Dr. Annabelle Painter. Recent developments in transformer-based language models have brought about a new type of assistive technology, Copilot tools. These include Microsoft's Copilot and GitHub Copilot, which both use OpenAI's ChatGPT4 to assist users in various tasks, such as writing code, creating images, and answering questions. With the increasing admin burden on clinicians, many are hoping that medical Copilot tools could be the answer to keyboard liberation, freeing up time for more meaningful clinical interactions with patients. But how do we know if we can trust AI's accuracy when it comes to performing clinical tasks? Delving into this topic with me today is Dr. Dom Pimenta, who's a cardiologist and CEO of Tortoise, the creators of Osler, an AI agent for clinicians. Our conversation covers some of the clinical and technical challenges involved in the creation of these tools, including the question of clinical liability. Who holds responsibility when clinicians use AI to make decisions? And the question of when will clinicians be considered negligent for not using AI? We discuss the puzzle of how we use AI to augment those with the least clinical experience, whilst protecting them from the perils of AI misdirection and automation bias. Dom shares the practical realities of evaluating LLM tools and how to keep up with such a fast-paced and evolving sector. Dom also reveals the surprising use of clinical communication skills in LLM prompt engineering. It was a pleasure chatting with Dom, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Dom. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So to start the podcast today, I would love you to give us a bit of background about you. So tell us about... Uh, your career history today and what you're up to now with Tortoise. Yep, so I am Dr. Don Pimenta. I am a physician. I qualified 13 years ago now. Worked as a cardiologist in the NHS, got to about ST6 up until 2020. So first wave of COVID, then redeployed into COVID ITU, did that for six months and then left, became a pharmaceutical physician which is pretty interesting, actually. I worked on CRISPR and gene editing and the Intellia study that just came out was one of my early studies. Um, and I really enjoyed that job. But unfortunately, my wife got sick and she's fine now, but she's back at work herself. But at the time, I meant to be a stay-at-home dad slash something to pay the bills. And I sort of fell into healthcare AI academic research as part of that role, learned to code, do machine learning, and eventually started running digital trials in liver disease and heart failure. One of them was completely over-engineered the massive failure, but the other one, actually the heart failure, was quite low-tech, but very, very powerful. And kind of decided that, well, two things. One, maybe health tech is a better place for an individual to have leverage, as opposed to pharma. Like, pharma's great, but you're a small cog in a massive machine. And B, I just think I got too old to have a boss. I remember sitting in an e-portfolio meeting and being like, oh, why am I still here? And I was very fortunate to be accepted into the Entrepreneur First Accelerator based here in London, Met my co-founder, Chris Tan, he's CTO at Tortoise and a machine learning engineer. And we started building this company with the idea essentially that we could give every clinician an AI assistant and sort of what tool sets and AI powers that assistant would have is what the question we kind of be answer and ship, I guess, in the last year. So that's where we are. 
Thank you for that background. That's really helpful context. And today we're going to be talking about this, this topic of co-pilots for health. And so I want to jump straight in to that last point you were just making about what functionality you might be able to offer. Because when we talk about co-pilots, what do we mean? What is a co-pilot in health and what kind of tasks and tools and benefits will, will something like that offer a clinician? Mm, that's a super good question. I think we in fact, don't use the term co-pilot any, anymore simply because it's just very nebulous. And if you look back into co-pilots for health, even like the last five to 10 years, you'll have something calling itself a co-pilot that's like injecting small bits of words next to your sentences. And that's all the functionality it has. And now scaling that all the way up to a large language model driven interactive chat interface that can talk to you and do multiple tools and, and that could also be a co-pilot so i think it would be super useful i think for everyone in the industry and maybe we'll get to this point especially when we get further down the regulatory pathway of like having a definition of what we actually mean by that i think in my mind i like the word co-pilot because i like where it comes from so like the medicine analogy to aviation has always been something that i didn't think was amazingly apt but increasingly more so and if you look at the some of the interventions, so Atul Gawande wrote the book Checklist, and he references the story of the first sort of Boeing prototypes, the big jumbo jets. And when they first started flying them, they just crashed all the time. And actually, even the Air Force at one point thought they were just too complicated to fly. But they introduced checklists, they introduced this concept of having multiple pilots, like going through it together, reducing errors to sort of nearly zero now. And they managed to fly the, the plane successfully. So the principle really behind co-pilot in the truest sense of the word is about eliminating error practicing safely and having like a double check of everything that you do and that's kind of maybe how we approach it at tortoise so our mission is a sort of an overarching statement as to the idea that we could potentially eliminate human error in medicine and the reason i think that's a, a really apt aviation industry is because if you look at most of the errors that happen every single day it's usually not because of diagnostic error or like obvious diagnostic error like hard problems it's normally because of some small system change or some small mistake or something else and we've always accepted <coughs> those because human beings are fallible they make decisions by themselves and therefore mistakes happen but what if the combination of AI plus human makes most of those mistakes very hard to actually actualize and they disappear? Then maybe we could move to a state where we don't accept that anymore. So what do I think about the term co-pilot? I think it's about safety actually more than anything else. And I think that's where we should be able to move to. A true co-pilot should be able to interact with you like a colleague can. Imagine if there's two of you doing everything, how much better would you be and how few errors would you make? So yeah. So I recently heard this phrase said, it was actually by Umang Patel from Microsoft, and he was mm. speaking at an event with me. And what he said was something really apt about co-pilots was he was sitting with some friends who work as pilots and they were saying, look, nowadays you wouldn't want to get into a plane where there isn't an autopilot, but you also probably wouldn't want to get into one where there's not a pilot. And yeah. the idea that in the future in healthcare we might feel similarly about that where we want to have this augmented clinician relationship and actually may feel unsafe to see a clinician without that because it's seen as such a vital part mm. of ensuring their their safety and their optimal performance yeah 
one of the forcing functions I think that will happen in the next one to five years, let's say, is there'll be two streams. There'll be the physicians who are working alongside AI routinely and the physicians who aren't. And actually, from an indemnity perspective, they'll start seeing consistent, thorough, always captured documentation, even at the very starting point of what these systems can potentially do. Better communication with the patient, better engagement. And on the other side, start going, well, why don't your notes look like this? Why don't why isn't why aren't your letters consistent? Why have you missed this thing? And then ultimately being like, well, if you don't work alongside these type of agents, your indemnities will start going up and your insurance will start going up. So I imagine, you know, as adoption gets a bit wider and these things become more common it will actually be the free market that then accelerates for exactly the reason that you've just said, that we have an expectation of safety that then goes beyond what we currently expect simply because we can start seeing the evidence of this. So some of the studies that we've done at Tortoise, we've looked at the quality of documentation as a standalone sort of measurement before and after using the AI to augment. So what we do, we sort of take transcripts and create notes and letters. Um, that's one of the tools that the R assistant does. And we measured it formally using something called the Sheffield Assessment of Inpatient Letters, which is like a verifiable way of essentially how good is the information for a colleague to read. And what was interesting is that in the same time period, physicians basically doubled the quality of documentation and doubled the quality of letters. And as soon as that becomes ubiquitous, someone's going to pick up one that's not augmented and be like, this letter doesn't make any sense. There's spelling mistakes and all these. Like, this, doesn't, this isn't the standard anymore that we would expect. Similarly, like if I gave you a a Nokia 5110, you might be like, oh, I can't use this. It's got no internet. It's rubbish. Whereas I remember when that was the coolest thing to have in the world. So I think it's, yeah, as the, as the goalposts move, the expectations will move as well. And then I suppose the fundamental question is, and some people believe this is the case and I don't, when does it move beyond expecting the human, right? And I think in healthcare, I just can't see it happening. I can't see it happening for 10 to 15 years for lots of reasons. One of them is patient expectations. You know, they want that human to human interface. They want that human connection. There are still things that humans can only do in healthcare, like examining and touching and talking. But I think there's also a medical legal thing. And I think we think about that a lot as a company. And I also think that as a lot as a clinician. I'm very happy to augment clinicians when they take responsibility for outputs, decisions, things like that. I think no company on the planet right now, at least, will take responsibility in, in its entirety for the actions of a model. Because even when you scale that up and you have a near perfect model, you will just get sued every single day because of the volume and because of the patients and because of the areas that could accrue. So you do need a human in the loop, I would say, yeah, I don't know, forever, but certainly for the, for the midterm. And I think that's sensible. You know, they're the algorithms that we've trained. <laughs> if you think about it in the truest sense of the word, the human algorithms walking around, like there's 30, 40 years of experience, pattern matching, like, you know, a very senior physician can spot sick 30 meters out, 50 meters out. Like these are, these are very good models in that kind of sense that if we could utilize them better, actually we'd unlock a lot of value. And that's a much more sensible place to start than thinking about replacement, which I don't think makes any sense, right? So we veered into the topic here really about clinical negligence and liability, which is, I think, a really mm. interesting and unresolved one in the field. But I think there's two particular points in there that I want to pull out that you've raised, which I think are really interesting ones. The first one is this point about negligence. So at the moment, there's a lot of worry about people using AI technologies because it's unclear, you know, if you were to, for example, follow the advice of an AI technology and um, that advice was incorrect and then the patient came to harm. 
um, you may be seen as negligent for following that advice and where that liability sits in that scenario is still something that is to be confirmed you know it's, it's there is no case law mm. so we're not sure about that but what you're kind of alluding to is this idea that well, eventually over time, you may actually be found to be negligent for not using AI, because once everyone is using the AI and it becomes just the standard of care, then actually by not using it or by choosing to ignore an AI opinion, that could be perceived as being negligent. And it will be really interesting to see how that space changes over the coming years. The second point I wanted to come to was your point about, and it's not unrelated, but your point about having a human in the loop and always wanting to have a clinician making the final decision because the worry I have about this position is that there's a significant risk that the AI tool influences clinician behavior especially when they're subject to things like automation bias which means you're likely to trust an AI output just because it's from you know a digital tool or an AI tool and when these tools are often black box tools that are unexplainable, or even when they have a certain amount of explainability, some early studies have suggested that explainability in and of itself is likely to make clinicians more likely to trust that AI just from the presence of it. Mm. So taking that all into account, my worry is if we say the liability always lies with the clinician who has to use this tool as part of a plethora of tools that allows them to make a clinical decision, but ultimately the responsibility lies with them, is that that's unfair on the clinician given how likely they are to be influenced by using these AI tools. And I think it's a really complex problem, but I'm interested in your thoughts on this and, th and this risk of clinician influence and relying on these tools and automation bias and, and how you approach that with your work at Tortoise. Mm. So, yeah, it's really interesting and it's something that we have on the horizon. So where we are at the moment is we're just sort of taking over. The first goal we have as a company actually is to sort of free the clinician from the computer. So that's all the digital work. And most of that isn't, in fact, diagnostics or guidelines or advice. It's putting in information, ordering tests, pulling out information. But there, there's some risk inherently in that, but that's not as uh, worrying. I think what's really interesting is that if you break this down to maybe the smallest possible influence into the what we call cognitive workflow so we we've already looked at this bringing guidelines in so you see a patient you make a diagnosis and the ai goes oh okay you think the patient's got pneumonia so this all seems very innocuous so far and here's the local trust guidelines for pneumonia it's your sepsis six your fluids your lactate oxygen blah 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 that's great right but now imagine this scenario that you're an f1 and your first six months on the ward you're afraid to ask your SHO you've just seen a patient that they can't find anyone in a busy hospital you think the patient's got pneumonia and suddenly the AIs go okay here's some guidelines for pneumonia and you're like oh my god like the AI agrees with me I'm such a good doctor hooray and then you give the patient a liter of fluids because that's what the guidelines say right you want to get them up to their sepsis six but actually your examination findings incomplete you missed the bibasal crackles you missed the previous MI four years ago patients actually in pulmonary edema and now they've been killed. And I think that actually is something that we do not understand. What is the cognitive impact of, of working alongside? We kind of get colleagues and we have a chain of responsibility. Like if I call the SHO and I'm an F1, if I call the reg, if I call the consultant, who do I escalate to? How do I get trained to do that? All of that makes sense. When we put an AI into that at various levels of the chain, I don't know if we A, understand the cognitive biases that might create or b understand the medical legal aspect of that you know f1 plus ai 
is that a sort of okay to sort of act slightly above the knowledge base or should it in fact ask them to call a human to help like is that useful is that probably not useful from a resource perspective but it might be useful from a medical legal perspective i think that's, that's something that we probably actually even want to start to sim like can we get the ai to change people's minds just by suggesting guidelines in the right place or is that meaningfully actually a positive a net positive or a net benefit and i think the discussion around this space will always be, unfortunately, that the answer is probably going to be a little bit of both. Just like, for example, there are many drugs on the market. The number needed to treat is X. The number needed to harm has to be a multiple of that. And therefore, it's safe to go on the market. And if it's not, you know, overall safe ratio, then we wouldn't have that medicine. So I think building out the AI and in fact, in any use case, whether it's guidelines or much more advanced diagnostics or anything like that, if there's, if there's really good, strong clinical evidence to show that the net benefit grossly outweighs the net harm. And I think most, you know, that that's an obvious path to, to adoption. That's how medicines work for the last 50 years. That's how, you know, you and I can prescribe medicines safely because we understand there's a formula and there's a process. And I think the interesting thing here is like the pharma industry moved glacially slow in some respects with regulation, but the tech industry is moving 100,000 times faster. And that's actually a big problem because now we potentially have, you know, diagnostic models, GPT-4, given NEGEM cases just a couple of weeks ago, 99% outperformance of all other doctors because the general knowledge encoded in that model is very, very good and it's very broad. Therefore, most doctors, even with specialty knowledge, couldn't get all of those hard clinical cases. And now you're wandering around going, well, this person's misdiagnosed, this person's misdiagnosed, that poor lady you saw a PA about two or three months ago had a PE, got prescribed beta blockers and died probably from, you know, arrhythmia and right heart failure. So there's almost like a moral imperative to do to figure out a how we do this and b how can we do it really really fast and i think that's one of the really interesting things is to say you know if the benefit is that great and we have these errors it's this isn't like a oh shall we do this or not it's like we have to do this but how do we do this in a way that we can get into the system that we can adopt that we can demonstrate the evidence the big reason why we called ourselves tortoise was we decided that the only way to do this was slowly <laughs> by collecting the evidence and creating studies and frameworks where we can understand, measure things scientifically, and then demonstrate that. And then A, that knows that we know we're building in the right direction. But B, we can also demonstrate that to clinicians and ultimately the people who have to adopt the liability of technology, which is still the same process, which is the institution that then adopts. And we have to produce those evidence. And I think, you know, health tech, you know, DCB 160 and all the compliances used to be quite a boring job. But I think in the age of AI, I think it's going to be fascinating. It's going to become a lot more like, you know, clinical pharmacology. And we might even see whole industries spinning up where they test these things in a meaningful way and they follow the frameworks in the same way that we've had with pharma. So, yeah, this should be quite exciting. And we've done a little bit of work around this, but uh, there's a lot more to be done, I would say. So I'd really love to get into this question of evaluation with you. But before that, I just want to touch on something else you said, which I thought was really interesting, where you were given an example of a more junior doctor, say an F1, and the impact mm. on them versus a more senior doctor. And I think that is a really important point, actually, when it comes to the risk of these tools and on automation bias. And it's because in trials, we can see that the less experienced you are and the less confident you are in your own ability to make decisions, the higher risk you are 
of automation bias. So in other words, mm. the less experience, the less confidence you are in making clinical decisions, the more likely you are to implicitly trust an AI without questioning it. And partly that's due because you don't have the knowledge to be able to critically appraise an output and be able to really understand whether that's a sensible suggestion or not. And partly it's you just haven't been there, done that, you haven't seen lots of those cases. So you just don't have the confidence in your own clinical judgment in the same way. But I think that's really important because in this context of having clinicians in the loop and always putting the responsibility on the clinicians, it's therefore the most junior clinicians or potentially the most generalist clinicians mm. who are at most risk, whereas those who are more senior and more specialised are less likely to be inaccurately persuaded by an AI technology. So I think that's quite interesting and something we have to think about in order to protect those more junior clinicians. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember once looking at some blood tests with an F1 and they'd written down all the abnormal results and they'd written paracetamol less than four. And I was like, why did you write this down? Like, did you think that they had a paracetamol deficiency? But it's exactly as you said, right? They just saw the red test and they were thinking, oh, no, the, the paracetamol level is low for this patient. Do we need to do anything? I was like, you can give us a paracetamol, I guess. I, I don't know what you meant to, what you thought this was <laughs> going to be. But I, I think because there is an overwhelm of information, like people do rely on digital systems, assuming they've been, exactly as you say, assuming they've been, corrected because they haven't got any experiential evidence to the contrary and that does become an issue I mean the flip side of that obviously is AI actually in itself becomes a great trainer so you and I also know that there is an element you know every physician is a little bit artist and a little bit scientist and let's just say some are more artists and scientists and vice versa but actually both all of that leads to the like the issue really is that if you make a mistake there's a lot more like personal what's the word uh, personal stake in your work you know you take your, it's your patient right even the vernacular is is ownership right it's ownership of the problem it's ownership of making your decisions so the people that you know obviously don't want to admit to mistakes or don't want to learn might actually want to admit to those mistakes or have them like in a private environment with an ai that can like talk them through it and teach them about something and then they don't have that you know, that reputational worry that so many physicians do, where they can't ask for help because they don't want to look like they don't know what they're doing and therefore they never learn. I see a lot, a lot of doctors get trapped in there, especially if they're, you know, in difficult departments and things. So I, I, I am actually quite interested in like the flip side of this as well. How good can we have like private conversations with AI and learn things? And you know, I don't mind admitting this, I've been out of the game for a while now and I was going back to do some internal medicine shifts uh, and I happened to be on holiday. So I asked ChatGPT to help me they give me a bunch of cases. I said, you are a internal medicine professor. You're interviewing a new colleague for the department. Give them the hardest grilling as you can. Give them some cases. Ask them the hardest questions. And it was actually really good. Like, it asked me questions about lupus and, like, some really, really difficult stuff. And then it started wandering into ethics and say, like, the patient doesn't want an amputation. What are you going to do? How would you describe that to the patient? And then it would, like, grade me. And I found that incredibly useful. And, I, I mean, I had sufficient medical knowledge to know that it was accurate. And it was like getting my wheels to spin again and actually be very useful. But even as like a, you know, a great coach, potentially, you know, there's a lot of untapped potential that we could look into. And again, investigate how well those things work. And that's why I think there's a yeah, super interesting little side project there. Yeah, really interesting. And, and also the flip side to the comment I was making earlier is that whilst the juniors may be the most vulnerable to things like automation bias, data also suggests both within healthcare and outside it, that those with the least knowledge and experience can have their performance increased the most by the use of these tools. And actually, if you get these tools in the hand of experts, it doesn't 
maybe improve their performance at all or it might a bit but it's those junior doctors that it really improves a lot and I think the idea of using it in, in a teaching and coaching way is really interesting including in things like communication skills because I think another finding that's been quite interesting that's come out from testing LLMs in healthcare is that they're perceived to be much more empathetic than doctors mm. and actually mm even using them to train doctors to be better at those communication skills. I think that could be a really interesting use case. But I do want to get back to this question of evaluation, because you talked about how we might be getting to a stage where actually there's like a moral imperative to start using these kind of tools. And I think it's interesting that there have been announcements, like, for example, from from Nuance and Microsoft, that they have now integrated DAX Copilot, their product, into Epic. So, you know, in some areas, it, it is already happening. And I'm interested from what you were saying about, you know, tortures and your approach of going slowly and making sure things are evaluated, what your thoughts are on the fact that, you know, there are hairs out there that are going for it. And what <laughs> what, what worries you about that? Or what uh, when you think about tortoise and your product, what, you know, keeps you up at night? What makes you concerned? And, and how does that influence your approach? What do you think is needed? But before we start widely adopting mm-hmm. these tools? Yeah, it's a super good question. I think, so there's a few things to keep me up on that. I think the, the, the industry is moving super fast, 100%. But I think one of the things that keeps me up at night is worrying that the wrong players with the wrong attitude will take up a lot of the space, which is, which is historically what has happened before in health tech. And we miss a great opportunity to massively change how we practice medicine and how we improve the care that we're actually giving. Like there's a real fundamental possibility here that the technologies that we are now unleashing actually could create new models of care, which were just not possible before, like literally just not possible. I mean, to go back to one of I mean, we've always talked about experts not helping, not finding that usefulness from some AI augmentation of being experts. But what if I, as a consultant cardiologist, for example, if I'd finished that career, could have actually practiced across the entire breadth at the consultant level for any internal medicine specialty, right? With AI, I could have done nephrology and respiratory and endocrinology and added them all together. So suddenly you've you created a workforce which you could man, or woman in fact, any sort of community hospital and see any patient at a secondary care level. And you've massively democratized, I guess, medical expertise in a really useful way. And I think, it's just a lack of imagination. You know, look at Dax and yours and they're doing documentation and things. I was like, yeah, that's great, but that's just the start of what we can potentially do here. And then how do how do we make sure this gets taken forward by clinicians, you know, people who understand not just the workflows, but also the fundamental point of what it is we're trying to do, the fundamental goals of care. And I, it's really fascinating because I think AI is also a technology which massively reduces the gap between what I think should happen and here is the product that I have developed that can do that thing, right? And I, obviously, as a clinician in this space, I've seen that. I've seen how quickly we can go from here's an idea with a team. In a, a year later, we're now shipping product. It's DTAC, it's DSPT, it's out there in primary care. And that that cycle with AI is going to get shorter and shorter and shorter. So we may find that actually a lot of big companies in the future are led by the professions themselves that they are trying to serve, not just in healthcare, but in law teaching there's i mean the list goes on and on i think um and again like the the old paradigm maybe where a tech company comes in with with goals that are 
aligned to the technology itself, but not maybe to the profession or to the area or to the goal. I think that's maybe my biggest concern is that we kind of miss that that up that window of opportunity as a profession to say actually for once we were going to own this right we're going to own the health tech uh, create and and evaluate and and find a way to build those frameworks before mass adoption of something else that's not aligned and then it's maybe a little bit too late so yeah and i think the, and the last thing i think about is like all of that keeps me up on that and worries me but i think the fundamental principle really is you know build something good and i think for any startup in the space, especially in AI, which is such a chaotic and busy area, you cannot worry that something's going to come along and just like sweep you away if you've built something that genuinely solves a problem and you're serving one customer. And I can say hand on heart now, we are serving one customer and they love it, right? So the next goal is, okay, now serve 10 customers with that one thing as best you can. 10 doctors using the system, hitting that core goal. Can we give them more time? Can we reduce their cognitive burden? And can we go from 10 to 100 to 1,000? And I think that's the fundamental principle. Is it's like, if you know it's good and it's value and it's evidence-based and we spend a lot of time figuring out hallucination rates and emission rates and word error rates, and we have a whole system and platform to do that. And then we ship it and we know that it's safe and it's creating genuine value, then kind of everything else is neither here nor there. And I also think healthcare is such a massive industry that my main worry about someone coming along and sweep it up actually probably has never happened historically and probably never will happen because everything is so different and systems are so different and there's so much value everywhere so yeah hopefully we can can do a little bit of good anyway at some point and if we do a lot of good that would be a nice bonus right but a little bit is the goal so you've talked a little bit there about some metrics that you look at for example when evaluating your product Mm. so i want to just go into this question about how do you start evaluating LLMs? You know, we've had Hugh Harvey on this podcast before talking about the challenge of, for example, making medical devices using LLMs and how difficult that would be to to generate the clinical evidence that you would need to actually prove the safety and efficacy of an LLM powered model. And given that you're producing a product that does use an LLM, I'm I'm just really interested in how do you start approaching that question? How do you ensure that your LLM is clinically effective and safe? Mm. I mean, I have to say that the first thing that, about the point about our company is that we don't build our own models. And that I think that was a bet that we took about a year ago to think that the space is moving so fast that it's better for us to figure out a way to evaluate what's out there and always move to the most state-of-the-art and safest model and figure out how to constrain that than it was to fine-tune or build our own. Um, and that still actually serves the point today. So the models that we use right now and the functions that we have right now in the system are the ability to transcribe a consultation, which is a speech-to-text AI model, and the ability to generate notes, letters, and now codes, orders, and diagnosis at the back of that as well. And diagnosis being the codes to file, not making diagnosis, but just the structured data. Now, interesting, the first thing is that we decided that we, at least for the first rung of iteration of the company, we wouldn't go into the medical device territory at all. So all we're doing at the moment is summarizing information and combining it, but not adding anything that meaningfully changes diagnostic treatment or prevention, which is the medical purpose for MHRA guidelines. But we will definitely go there. It's just a question of like figuring out the basics of how we do that to start with. So how do we do that right now? So we have speech-to-text AI model. We've evaluated that eight times. That's very interesting. There are already metrics for evaluating speech-to-text 
AI in general, which is like traditionally the word error rate, which kind of makes sense. But there's a couple of problems with that. One, you could have an amazing 99% word error rate model, but in the clinical space, if it doesn't do very well on the medical conditions or the medicines, it's actually not very useful. So what's more useful is to figure out a way to do what we look at the clinical entities. And that's kind of how the system that we built at the moment is to understand the clinical entities that are produced by the AI model. And then we went around and looked for ground truth data that we could then uh, test those against. We found some data sets, one of them, wow, Wolf's from Babylon and they published it. And we thought that would be ground truth. You know, you've got audio files and you've got medical transcripts of various consultations, that would be super useful. But then when we looked very hard at the data, we realized that actually it wasn't even correctly ground truth labeled. So the first sort of learning point for us as a company is we had to do human hand validation of every data set that we have as a starting point. There simply isn't anything good enough out there that we could find. And to do that, we needed clinicians. So initially that was me. And now we actually, we have a platform that we called Creola, which is named after Creola Catherine Johnson, who was the human computer from NASA. And she was one of the first mathematicians that did by hand the calculations to land the Apollo moon landings on the moon. And we thought that was very analogous. Like the technology is here, but how do we do this safely? And actually it's gonna be humans in the loop that need to actually hand validate this stuff. So that platform now has about 90 clinicians engaged with it. And we, what we do is we generate experiments, show them transcripts from new speech-to-text models or outputs from our notes in our letters. If we make any changes to how we do prompts, and we have a very strict system around prompting the various large language models, or we change the underlying models, which we've changed four or five times already on the large language model side as well, then we reevaluate that against our ground truth data. And we look at hallucinations, emissions, and then classify that. And we had to develop a classification system as well, which is actually very interesting. So again, if you look at the literature, people have classified large language model hallucinations. They created taxonomies, like not to talk badly of any particular person, but like some of those papers are just nonsense. Like they've labeled all these hallucination types as like silver lining hallucinations or fear of ghosts. I don't know, I'm making this up, but they had really like weird names that didn't make a lot of sense clinically. So we just created a system which was major or minor. If you have a major hallucination, if it's left in the text, it would materially affect the diagnosis or the treatment or the prevention of the patient. If it's minor, then it, yes, it is a hallucination. It doesn't appear, it's come from somewhere else, but it wouldn't affect materially in this context, which the context is super important, the output of this consultation. So for example, if you're seeing a patient with anxiety and the LLM imagined that they had a dog, that actually is a major hallucination because the presence or absence of a pet materially affects their mental health. But if you saw a patient with a broken foot, let's go to the other extreme, and the LLM imagine that they had a dog, that is not here, neither here nor there. It doesn't affect their diagnosis or treatment or prevention of that specific condition. And the same thing with emissions. There are major emissions that cannot, you know, you should have in the output that were missed out that could materially affect it and minor. So that's a very simple system that we've been using. But then that gives us a metric that we can iterate against. And I think there's two really important things with this kind of evaluation. One, it doesn't actually matter what the, how you create the metrics. As long as you have a system, as long as that system is repeatable, iterable, then you can keep making it better. And if you decide vaguely that the system metrics are accuracy, hallucinations and emissions, and you keep reducing those, then the system will get more accurate and will get more safely. And whether or not there's the, the perfect you know, metrics for what you're trying to do is neither here nor there. And lots of actually models are similarly trained like that. 
And I think B, what's really interesting me is with the data that we are collecting as a company, we don't collect any data in any other aspect, but it's exactly around this error detection in the clinical space for large language model outputs. And the corpus of data we've got there with examples of hallucinations that are labeled by clinicians, examples of omissions. What I'm fascinated to see is like Criola today is a platform, but Criola in two years time, maybe with hundreds of thousands or millions of data point examples of what large language model errors in this space look like, that actually could in and of itself be an AI that then is sort of the adversarial AI for our main system and checking it and becoming a safety and oversight. And I think that's where, you know, this space becomes fascinating. Like if we could start getting AI to essentially to self-check or at least have some self-context, then that's when you build like real safety systems. But also the great thing is like we now have evidence I can show to any collision or hospital system how do we how have we worked out hallucination rates? How have we worked out emission rates? So that's like one layer, and I can show that data to hospitals. So here's experiment one, here's experiment two, this is the update, this is what this looks like. We've done some interesting experiments with accents. So we took our existing ground truth transcripts, run it through an AI in reverse, basically, and did text to speech, but with accents. So we added Einstein, Zelensky, Zosin, who else was in that list? That was hilarious. Oh, Mandela, and Gandhi as well. And then, and then try to work out how well our models would then pick up from that speech versus the ground truth, the clinical entities. And actually we realized that yes, it does really well for most of the consultation types, except medicines. So then we say, if there's strong accents, you need to repeat the medicines and make sure that they're enunciated so it gets into the system. So that becomes part of our safety case. And I guess the last layer for us is that we always pass the liability back to the physician to check the output, just like if a junior doctor was looking at their system which to get started i think is reasonable but over time we'll probably need to build better automated oversight systems into the into the into the outputs but i i would say to any company who's thinking of like not trying to do this like that's commercially never mind moral or scientific or clinical but commercially that's a very bad move like you really need to be able to demonstrate like last year people thought this stuff was magic now they understand a lot more about it and actually the second question after i go after i show them the thing is like okay what's your error rate how do you prove that what's your hallucination rate and it's the compliance and safety piece that really is i think one of the key moats in this industry now and maybe lots of people haven't realized that i certainly see people chatting on things like oh okay i'm gonna get to market i'm like no you won't because you know there's a patient at the end of the at the end of this chain of technology there's a patient and there is harm and there's a real clinician there's real risk so you have to manage that in a sensible way as possible but actually also the technology itself so the last thing i will say is that we've seen a massive improvement in the base rates just as the models have got better and it may just be that things like hallucinations for example or with different techniques, so, you know, uh, retrieval augmented generation being um, a very promising one, that these types of errors just, they just stop existing um, in, in, the near, in, very, in the very near future, in fact. So we're pretty agnostic as well to, to the model technology, so we can keep up with that. And I think that's also been a very useful move. So I have one question for you, which is that you talked about perhaps the need down the line to remove the fact that clinicians need to check the output and maybe having some automated oversight mechanisms. And I'm wondering if you've ever thought of deploying multiple um, algorithms at the same time and then seeing where they may disagree in their outputs and using that as a way of highlighting where there might be problems in or like hallucinations or emissions. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting idea. So one of the big 
compliance i mean fundamentally right now you cannot really do ai enterprise grade with the safety and accuracy that it needs if it's not in the cloud i think open source has a lot of promise and in fact the last six months there have been a lot of open source models that have come out that do show a lot of promise and we have started to think about evaluating them so having multiple models interesting like competing i guess is a very interesting idea and we haven't really seen that as yet and i suppose when there's a big gap between what's out there for this use case uh, and you know and, and any other model that like, i don't think that would really work today but even now i'm thinking actually we haven't tracked out the latest mixture model for example and that already does mm. have close to gpt4 performance so maybe that is an interesting uh, a way of looking at and like having converge i mean there are other so there's a technique that came out from a company called Kirai a while ago, which is called the DIRA technique. So the designer and researcher, a decision maker and the researcher. And basically that meant you run it through it twice. And one is like an orthogonal prompt. So one is like generation. And the next is like, okay, you've got this transcript. Now check it again against the, against the original and compare and find out any discrepancies. So basically you're just using the same model, but in two different functions. And that actually seemed to work quite well. Like it did boost performance quite significantly. I think fundamentally, like there's a lot of ways that you can experiment and it's quite fun to be able to do these kinds of experiments, but you do need a big platform, like a clinical Turk type of platform to be able to find some sort of ground truth out of it. And that requires humans in the loop to, to prove it out. But then as soon as you proved it out, we can put it in the product. And we made some product decisions this morning based on some experiments over the weekend. So it's a very satisfying uh, way of proceeding and very tortoisey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really interesting. And, and I think it's interesting you mentioned that like most recent Mistral um, AI, which is called Mixtral, because it uses mixture of experts. So it's kind of inherent within the model using multiple models. So yeah, it'll be really fascinating to see how those techniques continue to develop. Another question I had for you, I think it was really interesting, the insight you had there about accents and that particular nuance and that you've uh, you found that with medication pronunciation, that there's a problem there that, that has changed. Therefore, the way that your product interacts with people who have mm. strong accents. So I'm wondering if you, through your analysis of hallucination and, and emission rates, have detected any other trends that you find interesting about where these LLMs are most likely to mm. slip up that maybe isn't isn't intuitive because it's quite different to human cognition. Yeah, that's super interesting. So there's some obvious ones. If you feed examples, it it, it struggles to tease apart the example from the reality. So even it's very hard to guardrail that. If you leave things incomplete or vague, I think one of the really interesting things from a communication perspective is like. Very few people in this world, professions, have actual communication skills about how to explain something properly. But I have genuinely found like the medical communication skills that we were taught at medical school are actually quite useful when prompting, like signposting, really breaking things down and saying, this is the task, this is why you're doing this, being much more explicit. The ambiguity, I think, is something that definitely the models don't do very well with. But also, like, even from emissions, like, what is clinically important? That's actually a really hard question because it makes you really look and think, OK, why did I ask about travel history in this patient with breathlessness and fever? Well, because I'm trying to exclude something else, right? But the models don't inherently know that. So they won't, they will always often admit negations because you don't, you need to specifically ask for them. That's a really good example of what isn't obvious. 
to you and I, it's obvious that, you know, if you don't have chest pain and you have breathlessness, that's a really useful differential. But actually, you know, the models don't have those reasoning capabilities, or at least they don't have a lot of them. So you have to be really explicit in terms of what isn't isn't useful and what the task is. I think, you know, some of the mistakes I see a lot of people do is they give very short prompts without much context and without much clear direction. When actually, I think the opposite, you get a lot more yield for very complex prompts and things with with much clearer instructions just and just again just like communicating well with the patient like do they actually understand you and there's a few interesting things like asking the model to produce its rationale that actually works very well because that seems to 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 constrain it but again i think even these learnings these observations probably will become obsolete in probably less than a year's time when there's different models or different behaviors all there's different techniques you know a lot of the hallucination stuff disappears when you start using things like rag so yeah, it's a it's a very interesting space that like you can spend a lot of time thinking about something academically and then you just solve it because something else just got updated and you're like, oh, that's not a problem anymore. Even though I worked on it six months, you sort of have to <laughs> take the take the hits as well as the as the good stuff. Right? Yeah, and I guess that comes with inherent challenges, right? Because if the model you're using then updates and changes, then that's going to change the performance of your product over time. So what's your approach to to dealing with that? Yeah, so I mean, there's a few enterprise grade things that we do. So generally, we make sure that we're hitting the same endpoint and we have the model description as opposed to the general model. I think when we update new models consciously, we do a reevaluation piece and that works, seems to work pretty well. And then also we have to have a good delta for switching because obviously you have to start from scratch every time you switch to, to a new model. And I think it's interesting because I think we haven't moved into the open source, but really probably where we'll end up at some point converging in the future is you know controlling the models either on our own on-prem or actually maybe even on physical hardware that then we then push into various uh, organizations because i think that actually is the most sensible way of deploying this technology it's just like the hardware setup and the expertise doesn't really exist and then you've got a stable system that you've proven out the model always infers in the same way you don't have any inherent training issues or any drift over time. And then you can just re-update it in a very meaningful way. I mean, similarly to like how you lock the mechanism of action of a drug by saying you can't make any changes to the to the base function or whatever, and then somebody else brings out a better version or a new coating or something, and it has to go through the same process again. So I think as the market matures, I think that's probably where we'll we'll end up. Like we've had a lot of rapid iteration, but I think that's gonna probably have to consolidate into something that's like fits with the commercial timescales of healthcare and humans and evidence generation. So I think actually things will slow down, not because of the tech, but because of we need a way to deploy and that relies on human beings making decisions, which takes a long time. Tom, I could speak to you about this for so much longer. It's been such a fascinating conversation. I, I wonder if uh, for a final thought, what what's exciting you most at the moment about this field? Hmm, that's a super good question. I think what's exciting me most is imagining the future. So well, the team's got quite big now. I had this weird moment over Christmas where I couldn't do anything because like lots of people in the team would own a specific area and because everyone was off for Christmas, I was like, I'm kind of like stuck. So all I could do was like think about the future. So I think already we're seeing how different colleagues are practicing or enjoying being practicing when they don't have to do 
sort of parallel documentation that stress gets taken away from them and like even hearing like some of our first customers like, oh it's just such a different experience like it's so nice it's so joyous and I'm like so I think that actually is just generally the most exciting thing to hear that you're having actual impact it's a weird thing to do to build a company and not have any customers properly for like a year and then suddenly you put it out to the world and you're like like first day of school for your kid right like it's my kid a weirdo like you want to see the same impact and generally I think where we can go with this like you know the future of this stuff is is really it's really quite fun and exciting to think about but genuinely just thinking about what are the discrete problems that we can solve right now in terms of getting more time back making the job easier making the system work and those wins are, are super exciting for us so yeah that's probably what's getting me out of bed in the morning right now. And what a lovely note to end on. So thank you so much, Dom, for joining me. It's been a real pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for having me.